If you think it's hard work building a house these days, imagine what it was like to construct a castle back in the Middle Ages. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Actually, you won't have to imagine, because a team of castle builders are hard at work right now in France, recreating the methods used by tradesmen back in the 13th century. And they've started building Castle Number 2 here in the USA in the Ozarks. We have a catapult that's in progress right now. Um, We've got all the pieces laid out. It's absolutely enormous. And when they get it put together, we'll start flinging things. Julie Sanvo explains what it's like to build a castle, coming up shortly on Travel with Rick Steves. And if a man's house is his castle, imagine what it's like to learn you're really a prince from a dispossessed royal Czech family with more than one castle waiting for you on your return to Europe. There were always three things that were stressed in our family, which was your family, and then your religion, and your education, because those were the three things that couldn't be taken away from you. Meet the accidental nobleman William Lubkowitz in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In Prague, you can buy ice cream fit for a prince. Actually, you can buy ice cream from a prince. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're meeting a prince from Prague whose family was able to return to their ancestral home, actually a collection of castles, after the fall of communism in 1989. William Lobkowitz was raised in Boston by an expat family of Czech royals. We'll learn how an ancient noble family's fortunes have changed and the role they now play in reconnecting 21st century Prague with its magnificent past. That's coming up in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with an unusual way an international team of builders are recreating the 13th century. For example, without bulldozers or electricity, you rig up a man-sized hamster wheel for lifting rocks. Since 1997, they've been building an elaborate castle at Gedeon in Burgundy by employing the construction methods used in the Middle Ages. And now they're starting another castle in Arkansas. Julie Sanvo is managing the Ozark Medieval Fortress Project. It's on donated land in Lead Hill, Arkansas. That's between Little Rock and Springfield, Missouri, just south of the state line. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Is there a man in a hamster wheel? Treading away? Yes, there is. What's he doing? He's lifting rocks, just like you said. He's using his body weight to lift ten times his weight in stone or mortar to build walls. Just like they did in the year 1229. Right. right. So, 13th century. Now, how did this all come about? They're actually slowly building a castle. I understand it started in 1997. It's going to take 25 years or something to build. Right. This is a project in France. And Michel Guillot had the idea because he, ever since he was a child, he worked on restoring castles. And all the time he had that aching question in the back of his head, how did they do this? How did they do this without machines? And so one, one night they were sitting around, of course, over wine and dinner <laughs> with his architect friends and art historian friends and archaeologists. And they said, why don't we try it? The best That's way to learn how... a dangerous thing. You get a bunch of archaeologists <laughs> and architects together some wine, and suddenly you're building a castle <laughs> from right. the 13th That's century. That's right. Let's do it. The best way to know is to do it. So they started it. So how far along are they in Burgundy at Guédelon? In Burgundy, they're about halfway through their project. They're in their 13th year. Halfway through. And it is on schedule. It'll be finished. It when will it be finished? Well, in about 12 years, it'll be finished. But the project will continue because wherever you have a castle, you also had a religious building, an abbey or something like that. You probably had a it's mill. It's an amazing thing. People so can, can go, go back on year forever. after year. Yes. What's it like to work there in France, in Burgundy, on this castle? Oh, it's wonderful. First of all, being in Burgundy is wonderful. I was a tour guide there for six years. It's the whole idea that all these tourists come to see this that gives it the financial basis to continue to grow. Right. It's a self-sustaining project. Now, how did the project leap the Atlantic and a parallel project start up in Arkansas, just, what, 20 or 25 miles south of Branson, Missouri? Well, um, Michelle met someone who was living in Leadhill, Arkansas, who had some land, and he went to France, and he saw Michelle's projects in France. His name is Jean-Marc Mira, and he wrote a letter to Michelle and said, there's a lot of, a lot of Americans don't even have passports to travel to Europe and would never be able to see something like this, because in Europe you see uh, medieval structures all over the place. He's an architect or something, the guy in Arkansas, Jean-Marc? No. Just a no, tourist. No, just just a cares? person. Who, with, right. some, with some land. Right. So he gets inspired by this project in Burgundy, and he thinks a lot of people in the United States don't have a passport, can't get over to France and check this out. Let's build it in Arkansas. That's right. Let's do it here. And, and how's so, that project going? It's going great. They started building, actually, in 2009, and they opened to the public in May 2010 last year. So we had our first season this So this summer. is basically, you got the footprint of this, this castle is, going on there. Yes, this is brand new. Mm-hmm. So somebody's traveling around the south of the United States, they can swing by Lead Hill in Arkansas, right. near the border it's of Missouri. Right along the road, yes. And uh, what's it cost to go there? 
It is $18 for adults. 18 bucks. You come in there and you see all this action happening. Right. Not only the, the building of the castle, the quarrying of the stone, the building of the castle, and everything that goes along with it, the blacksmith and the potter. And now, how do they know? It's supposed to be the year 1229. Louis IX was the king in France, right? And it's siege warfare. So they're building these castles to just survive all of these marauders that are coming in. How do they know all of the techniques from back then? Well, studying castles that exist, studying the walls of the castles, also from drawings, Uh and piecing together these theories of how they might have done it. Because technically, you're using the same methods, the same materials, the same tools, no electricity. Right. You actually quarry the stone? Right. You're kidding. There's a quarry there in Arkansas where you get the stone. Right. And that's why when Michelle came to the United States to check out this piece of land that, that, that John Mark had, it had to have the resources because to build a castle, you need a quarry and you need wood. And you need water. Those are the important things. So you got things. the quarry, so. the forest, the water, right? The cheap labor, right? No, not <laughs> <laughs> back labor then. The cheap labor, then, surf yeah. labor. You actually pay your people more yes, than the, some gruel in the morning, yeah. huh? right? <laughs> you know, we see castles all over the place, but they're done and they're pretty dead. This is a living project. Take right. us through, Julie, when you go to this site, whether it's in Arkansas or in Burgundy in France. What are you going to see? You want to take a guided visit, for sure, because then you get the explanation of why and how and how castles came about, because they just didn't appear out of the blue. It was an evolution from the Mott and Bailey onto the dungeon, onto the castle, and why, like you said, why we have to have five, six-foot thick walls and things like that. So you need to have a basic understanding of what's going on. But then you'll go through in the forest, and you'll see textiles. We have animals, the sheep, and people learn about textiles, and then go down and see the quarry and how they quarry the stone. And, and they're slicing the oak? Slicing the wood? Yes. Uh-huh. We have what's called a pit saw, where you have someone up on a platform, this huge saw, and you have a tree laying across there, and someone's on top and someone's on bottom, and they're, they're actually slicing the tree in pa- half. Painstakingly cutting this tree the long way. Right. The to long get a plank. way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then they have to square it off first and then slice now, it. Now, how do they do they have mystical medieval methods of measurement and geometry? Because Absolutely. it's just, inc- just mind blowing how they're able to build these castles in an age before any of the modern engineering techniques and computer stuff that we have today. Right. Can't click a button and have plans. So they had to use a 13-knot cord and use geometry because all of the castles and cathedrals are geometric shapes put together. What is, you said a 13-knot cord? 13-knot cord. So you will that? learn about the 13-knot cord when you come see the castle. Not, you talk it's about it cord. like it's the it, foundation of all of this. <laughs> well, it's, it's unique to this project because you don't really see the use of a 13-knot cord very often. And Pascal Varengo, one of our scientific journeymen that has helped us start the project, has brought this to life. So the 13-knot cord, it, it's not unique to castle building. It was, no. It was standard. But it's, it's something that you don't see demonstrated anywhere. Right. So we'll demonstrate it to us. It's well, 13 knots, of course. Yeah. And in between 13 knots, you have 12 spaces. Okay, so, so these knots are defining 12 spaces. Now it's right. starting to come It, it makes more sense, sense yeah, because 12. with the 12 spaces, 12 is a very important number because you can do any geometric shape with it. Really? And that was sort of the... Um, proto-ruler then? Right. So 12. 12 is important for building a castle. Yes, you've got 12 apostles, you've got the zodiac. 12 was just a number that was everywhere. 24 hours in a day, two 12-hour periods and so on. Wow. So tell me what you can design then with your 12-knot cord. You can do three different kinds of triangles. You can do an isosceles triangle, a a (laughs) equilateral triangle, and a right triangle. So three different kinds of triangles, square, Rectangle. And these romp. are all sort of the building blocks for putting together these arches and these vaults. Exactly. And so on. If you've got squares and rectangles, you can build your buildings. You've got mm-hmm. triangles, you can build your roofs, and of course, a circle for your towers. Now, in the 13th century, guys who were really good with their 12 knot cord were probably considered almost like wizards. Well, it's your architect. That's yeah. what an architect he's had. The has architect his has cord. Got, his, got his compass and his cord, and he's going to show everybody else because they haven't been going to school. So when I visit so this castle to... in Arkansas or in Burgundy, I can meet one of these uh, role playing architects who's going to pull out his 12 knot cord. Right. Is, do you have the role playing people there, these guys who are cutting the wood or dressed up like they were? They in are sun? dressed up, right. They won't be talking with accents, though. Right. Mm-hmm. So, But they will talk to the visitors. So yes, absolutely. That's, kind of that's great the, for that's families a, and kids that yes, want to be inspired by this. That's the neat part because that's what's different. You're not just going to visit, like you said, a dead castle. You're not right. just looking at the walls and standing there and wondering, well, I wonder how they did this. You can actually go up to the person and say, How are you doing this? And they'll and take time and talk to you. That's yeah. the whole idea. How, what, how's the mortar different in the 13th century than cement nowadays? So, what kind of people uh, get involved in this? What kind of? I was looking on your website. The crew it looks like a, a fascinating gang of people. You have people from all over. In Arkansas, we have a lot of masons from Arkansas because there's so much stone around there. There's a lot of masons there. But we have a scientific team in France that follows our project and made the plans and all that kind of thing. 
There's Kids a lot of just it. elbow grease, carrying yeah, wood, carrying definitely. rocks, carrying mortar, laying mortar, cutting wood. Are these people who are retired and want to have a fun second career, or are they doing it on the side after hours? Well, we or? have our employees that are doing it as, as a job, but then we also have a volunteer program where people can come out and work because if they don't want to painstakingly so toil for that, nine months, I could they go can, in that hamster wheel if I wanted yes, to? Yes, you can come and work for us. That would really? be great. Yes. And hoist come up give some, it a what an experience. <laughs> now, you've got the siege warfare whole dimension to this, and I, I mean, I imagine there's, as the castle develops further, you'll have more of a slice of medieval life dimension to the exhibit. Yes, we have a catapult that's in progress right now. So In Arkansas? In Arkansas. Um, we've got all the pieces laid out. It's absolutely enormous. And when they get it put together, we'll start flinging things. I mean, not just flinging things. <laughs> flinging 200-pound rocks for 1,000 feet. Yeah. You've yeah, got to have a strong could. castle to withstand well, I don't know that if I don't know if we're going to fling a rock. That might be kind of dangerous. But, but in the Middle Ages, could, that was the powerful thing. That was definitely. the, the that, awe-inspiring tool that could bring down your wall. Right, and that's why the walls had to be so thick. And Philip Augustus figured out that if they were thick enough to defend against a catapult hit, then they were they were good. So Philip Augustus, the castle is built from the reign of Louis the Ninth, but Philip right. Augustus was before him. He's the one that kind of designed a certain kind of castle. We call it a Philippian castle. A Philippian castle. So that was sort of the standard, state of the art military design. It was. Uh, of he a started a standard by so by the way. Say he the built. year twelve hundred, mm-hmm. all around Europe, they're using this. Philip Augustus designed for a castle. Right, and the design is after the Louvre, actually. That was the first one that oh, he built. Oh, because you can see the footprint of the Louvre there in the courtyard. Right. And that was one of those castles with the round turrets and sort of rectangular. Right. Tell me about this design. Well, the design is actually um, twin towers at the door, uh-huh. so that you always have protection at the front door. Yeah. Generally, you have about six other towers, depending on the size of the castle. But a tower every 50 meters. You're going to want to have a tower every 50 meters. And the walls being about 12 meters high and about 2 meters thick. So those medieval people weren't all that dumb. Oh, no. They were very, very smart. <laughs> have you gained a respect for medieval uh, thinkers? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You realize that it's not that they didn't know what they were doing. They were just doing it by hand. And they didn't have electricity and computers. Right. 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 Wow. Julie Sonvo, you've got me thinking about not only visiting a castle, but actually taking part in the building of a castle, or at least going there and talking to people who are doing exactly that. I can do that in Burgundy, or I can do that right here in the United States in Arkansas. Right. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for joining us. Thank you. This is an example of how these poles are used. Dans l'eau froide. Dans l'eau, mais à une bonne température. The Ozark Medieval Fortress is voted one of the top ten attractions in the state of Arkansas in a recent poll. Their website is ozarkmedievalfortress.com. And Julie's on Twitter at USA Castle. Meet an honest-to-goodness prince who oversees his family's collection of castles and art treasures in Prague. But royalty does have its price, as we'll find out next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy, protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách, tak dáte si pivo. This was Czech and it means, hi, my name is Honza, I'm from Prague and since we are traveling with Rick, we are traveling mainly through the pubs. Will you have a beer with me? Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy, protože cestujeme s Rikem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. 
Tak dáte si pivo? Last time I explored the vast and beautiful Prague Castle, I noticed a charming young man selling ice cream. I'm usually too busy when I'm researching sites in Europe to stop to buy anything from the local vendors, but this kid's sales technique convinced me to take a moment and enjoy some ice cream. Then I went on to tour another palace that had just reopened to the public. It had a great English-language audio tour of the palace that was narrated by a member of the royal family who had owned it for generations. At the end of my tour, I told the staff member to tell the prince what a wonderful job he did with the narration. They replied by asking me if I'd like to actually meet him. I said, sure, and a few minutes later, I was introduced to the prince and his charming wife on a balcony with the best view of the city of Prague. And while we were chatting, the young man who had sold me the ice cream a few hours earlier joined us. Turns out, he was the prince's son, William Jr. William Lobkowitz and his family are among the largest landowners in the Czech Republic, and the Lobkowitz name is as big a deal in Prague as the Kennedys are in Boston. Prince William Lobkowitz is here now to tell us about his family's story and to explain why repatriated nobility are selling ice cream to tourists in Prague. William, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me on. Now, your story is so interesting because your noble family has run into the Nazis and the communists and now freedom. Tell me just in a nutshell the tumultuous last century for your family. Well, our, our family's about 700 years old, and we pretty much lived the same way through the centuries, living and growing up in castles and being military generals and princes of the Holy Roman Empire, chancellors of Bohemia, so running that kingdom for the Habsburgs, and everything was pretty much that way until 1918, at the end of World War I, um, Bohemia, the kingdom of Bohemia, became part of Czechoslovakia. So at that time, titles were abolished. And my grandfather became really a Republican patriot and eventually joined the government, became the first secretary and then the ambassador to Great Britain during World War II and married a, an English woman. And in 1939, the Nazis came and changed everybody's life around the world, including ours, by invading Czechoslovakia. My grandmother had actually been on a train on her way to London just a few days before the Nazi invasion in, in uh, March of 39, some German soldiers got on and swore at her to make sure she didn't speak German and she pretended not to understand. And then they went on to talk about the big events that were going to be happening in a couple of days. So she was able to wire my grandfather and they got out the night before the Nazis invaded. So they were very lucky. Got to England and my dad and his brothers were sent over with most kids uh, around the Battle of Britain because it looked like the Germans were going to invade ended up in Boston. A, an amazing woman called Sylvia Warren took them into her house. She was bringing refugee children from all over Europe out of her pocket and placing them in families around the Boston area. At the end of the war, preparing to come back, and then my grandfather was in the country again, not with the family yet, and then the communists came in 1948, and things ended again. My grandfather was caught there. Again, my grandmother with a wonderful story by checking into the hospital in London with the help of the American and British ambassadors, set up a ruse where she pretended to be dying, and the new communist ministers came to look at her and said, okay, I guess she's dying. My grandfather got a two-day pass to leave the country because the borders were closed, basically to just go with his hat and his coat, bury his wife and come back, and got out. So he was really very fortunate to get out, and they ended up in the Boston area, hence my accent, this is where I'm born and raised, from this wonderful woman, Sylvia Warren, who took in the grandparents as well. And that's how we settled in the United States until 1989, when the world changed for a lot of people, including us in Central and Eastern Europe, with the end of communism. Give me a sense of the extent of your family's holdings before the, the Nazis took over. Well, before World War I, there was something like 13 or 15 castles. Uh, large holdings of land, forestry, I mean, you name it. There were uh, wineries, spas. There were five breweries in the family. There were coal mines. There were, you know, agricultural estates. There were sawmills. Okay, so basically lots of holdings. And then in 39, essentially everything is taken by the Nazis. 1945, you get it back. 1948, the communists come in, take it again. And then you're just living a life like you're going to be in exile for the rest of your times because there's no indication that Czechoslovakia will win its freedom. Suddenly, you're watching TV in 1989 and there's big news. Yeah, we're watching the TV huh. in, our, in our house. We'll never forget it. We were all watching as these 
East German refugees were seeking political asylum in the West German embassy in Prague. And this happens to be a Lobkowitz palace and uh, was a place we knew very well because when we went back as a family for the first time since the communists took over in 1948, uh, we, were, we were back there in 1976 and the German ambassador very kindly had given us a tour around for several hours. So we knew the building inside out in the gardens and we watched this unfold on television. It was absolutely amazing and we said, okay, something's going to happen here. It's going to change. Uh, but even then when we saw really something was going to happen, we didn't expect that by Christmas time, you know, this was in end of October, we didn't think by Christmas time Václav Havel, this poet playwright, would be president hmm. of the Czechoslovak Republic. Now, you're a, you're a young 28-year-old with a Harvard education, and you're probably thinking, okay, I'm going to be a mover and shaker here in the United States, and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I've got a different calling. Yeah. Well, I, I studied at uh, Harvard. Usually people are studying economics and government. I studied European history and music, so it wasn't really a typical major, and I was taking every course I could take on Central and Eastern European history because it, since I was a boy, it had always been something that really interested me. And I always felt that things would change in Czechoslovakia one day. I think we all did, but we just didn't know when and also when it started, how fast it was going to be. And many of our relatives, of course, were refugees from there as well. So at Christmas time and Thanksgiving or, you know, any, any sorts of holidays or family gatherings, everyone at our house talked with funny Central European, Czech, German <laughs> mixed accents. So it was quite normal to us to have this world around us. And of course, when the refugees and the aunts and uncles and older generation came, they were always telling us stories ever since I was little about what the old country was like and how beautiful it was and how much they missed it. So this was always something alive with me since I was little. You wrote a fascinating story of when you actually visited Czechoslovakia as a 14-year-old kid, just as a tourist, because your family was sort of... Uh, Persona non grata, yeah. What was that like? Well, it was the first time that my father had an indication that we could travel there safely. This was in 1976, mm -hmm. so it had been since 1948. And we, we did, we came over the border from Germany in, in a VW bus. And I think the most frightening thing happened at the border where we spent about three hours there. And the guards took our van completely apart. They had my father and, and brother in there for, you know, well over an hour sort of being talked to, interrogated, whatever you want to call it, and then eventually let us go in. And they knew who you were? They knew who the family yeah, was? Yeah, I mean, the, the name is very famous, yeah, and they knew, yeah. and they said, why are you back here, and what are right. you doing? And I said, well, you know, we're just tourists. And It's kind of like the Rockefellers revisiting a communist America or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it was a wild experience. Once we were inside the country, it was wonderful. You know, the, the great impressions for us were simply that people were, were very sad, and everyone always looked down because you didn't want to look like you were, you know, looking suspicious or everything because everybody was following. And we were tailed all the time and we knew to expect that. But right. it's still a very strange feeling. And we, we sort of dove into our family and into our history. We visited our relatives there and had a wonderful time with them. And we visited significant places to our family, either places of worship. There's a church in Prague where the baby Jesus or infant Jesus of Prague is in the Carmelite church. And that was the first place that my great aunt took us when we came there to pray. And this little Jesus child had been brought by one of my ancestors in the middle of the 16th century. And her daughter, when her Lobkowitz husband died in 1628, gave it to that church. And it performs miracles. And she'd been there since the war. She hadn't seen my dad since the war. So she felt it was a miracle that we were all back. So I remember vividly praying with this very old lady. Wow. And she thought that this was a miracle, that you were back. Absolutely. And and she was crying. I mean, it was wow. incredible. I know the church, it attracts lots of pilgrims. It does. Who are thanking God for miracles. It does. In the palace where you were, actually, um, you may remember on the tour, we have a reproduction because the original, obviously, we gave to the church a long time ago. But the original used to be in the Lobkowitz Palace, which is now open for the public. So we wanted to make that connection again. Now, this is interesting because you, you're a noble family with all sorts of art treasures and cultural treasures, and you felt it was better for that to go back to that church rather than stay in one of your palaces. It seems like you take it as a serious responsibility, the stewardship dimension of owning all of this important stuff for the Czech people. Well, we do very much. I mean, when we went back there, we made a decision at the very beginning, which was that we were going to open our collections for the public. 
And the collections are, are huge. That's far and away the biggest part of the patrimony that was returned to us. So there are tens of thousands of movable objects. I mean, everything that filled these 13, 15 castles before World War II, you know, we, we gathered from over 100 locations around the country. So there are paintings, furniture, everything you can imagine, decorative arts, as well as a huge family library. There's a, a 65,000 book library. There's an enormous family archives that's completely intact. In fact, we just moved it about a month ago out of the, the state storage uh, facilities, and that's our next big project. But in, in that alone, there are millions of pieces of paper, autograph scores of, of Beethoven and of Mozart, letters from Rudolf II, to the, the emperor, to our family, raising us to princes, and all sorts of you know really interesting things. And, and that's what makes our collection so so important because they're a holistic collection. They're, you know, the archives, the library, the the prints, the graphics, the 10,000 musical scores, and all of these objects, they're still intact. And that's quite unusual because there was so much damage either uh, in World War II or, or after and things that were lost. And I think that's what makes our collection so, so important and, and our job so important to put them in that context of, of not just this family, but also the history and the patronage there, it's, it's, it's very important to put all these things together. So that's, that's our main work. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with William Lobkowitz, technically Prince William Lobkowitz of the Czech Republic. William it must have been interesting to be from a noble family, but to be immersed in American culture as a young man. Yes. Well, I'm first-generation American, so for me, it's it's very easy. I'm I'm actually born there, but my father was born and raised in Czechoslovakia, well, at least until he was 11. And he came to America and to Boston and went to school here. And some, you know, people at school, that he went to Milton Academy, which is a, actually where I went as well. It's a local school here. And some of the kids that had heard about it said, you know, are you a are you a prince or what's that all about? And he really didn't want anybody to know anything of those things and just wanted to play baseball and be a normal American kid. Mm. There was an aunt, a particular aunt, who was a little bit, uh, the titles and things were very important. And she would write to him and she would write Prince Martin Lobkowitz on the, on the letter. And he would, you know, write back to her and say, auntie, please don't, you know, write that here. It's very... It's, it's not done. Please don't do it. And she kept writing it. And she finally wrote back to him and she said, please don't write back to me um, because Prince is the name of a popular brand of spaghetti here in Boston. <laughs> so uh, the auntie after that never wrote back. But I used to watch those commercials of Anthony running through the North End and the Prince Spaghetti Company. But Prince Spaghetti, anyway. yeah. Well, I guess 1918 right. was a bad year for nobles. That was when not even just in the Czech Republic, but all over the place, noble titles were dropped. That's right. In in Czechoslovakia in particular, that was under the Habsburg rule until uh, the end of World War I, and it became the Czechoslovak Republic. So titles were abolished, and that was also the basis under which the government could then confiscate all the properties of the Habsburgs, oh, which yeah. was very important, and then that was redistributed among the people after the war. So titles in that country were abolished, but actually in, in Germany, for example, it's still valid. So each country had its own particular thing, but in Czechoslovakia, they were abolished in 1918. And a century later, regardless of what happened in 1918, you've got noble families in every country in Europe, and you have uh, some sort of a kinship with everybody, just as far as your unique status and position in life. Do you find, as a member of a noble family who's really engaged, that uh, generally 21st century nobles have this feeling of... Noblesse oblige? Yeah. Or are they just greedy bastards that want to, you know, live high on the hog? I mean, there must be two kinds of nobles in Europe today. Yeah. I, I think I think it all comes down to they're just different kinds of people who come from different backgrounds, different upbringings, and who all see the world a little differently. So I can't really say one is better or, or another, but I mean, the way the way we were brought up was, and, and this is more of a refugee mentality, I think, but there were always three things that were stressed in our family, which was one is your family and then your religion and your education, basically because those were the three things that couldn't be taken away from you. And you had to make sure those things were strong. And that's what you built you know, your, your life around. And I think those are pretty good principles anyway to live by. But I can really only just speak to our case. I mean, as, as you were talking about the different families around Europe, I mean, 
most of them are my cousins somewhere I can go back to, you know, because it was just a small group of people marrying in over the centuries, marrying into each other's families. But I think today, you know, the world is very, very different, obviously, than it was, uh, you know, 100 years ago and before World War I. And I think you'll find a lot of very interesting examples of people solving. And it usually comes down to the heritage of the buildings and of the things that these families like ours want to continue to preserve and sort of how you do it. In our case, the properties that we were given back in restitution were damaged and destroyed. No one had invested in them. So hmm. it was our job to get them back. We didn't also, we didn't have the uh, advantage of having healthy businesses. The, the financial underpinnings of these estates no longer existed. So what we really had was only liabilities. Hmm. And so we had to make choices, which I think was one of the hardest things we had to do was to say, okay, these castles that we've gotten back now, how do we deal with these things? How do we make them live going forward. It's sort of, you know, the Phoenix Rising story. So instead of 10 castles that we got back in restitution today, we only have four. And I'm not sure if we'll even end up with four when we're done. It might be three. You've had to sell castles in order to keep the ones you were going to keep in, in good shape. Exactly. Not only castles, but some of the other assets we've gotten back. So we've essentially been living from bank loans at very high interest rates locally because, uh, I actually made a call in the in the early mid 1990s to when the SNLs were still going. I called the the most disreputable one I could find. I think it was in South Carolina, and I said on the phone, "Yeah, we've got these castles, and and uh, it's wonderful." And the the man on the phone said to me, "Well, that sounds great, boy. We'd love to lend you some money." And and I said, "That's great." And he said, "Well, what security do you have?" And I said, "Well, I've got." Czech castles in the Czech Republic, and the phone went, went dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, what a crackpot. Uh, yeah. that, that, didn't, that didn't quite work, but the interest rates were very nice in, in America. We would have had a little currency problem anyway. Right. So we were borrowing money at between 15 and 20% interest in the Czech Republic to pay the lawyers, to pay all the upfront costs, and to basically to borrow money to fix up the places that we felt we had some knowledge, some expertise in to create cultural tourism activities within these castles to make them self-supporting. And that's what, we're, that's what we're still doing. But it's a very tough way to earn a living and cover your, cover your costs, especially when you have, you know, September 11th and you have, yeah. you know, economic meltdowns for three years. So it's a tough way to do it. But we have to make these old buildings become self-supporting. That's the bottom line. And that's one of our main goals. We'll continue with William Lobkowitz in just a moment as we learn what it's like to live as Bohemian royalty in 21st century Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the realities of modern life for a repatriated European royal family right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Prince William Lobkowitz. His family lost their titles in 1918, and they were forced to leave Czechoslovakia when the communists took over after World War II. He returned to Prague when things opened up again after 1989. But we're finding out that this Prince William doesn't live much like his English counterpart, surrounded by opulence and staff and there's no unlimited bank account either. When you think about the Czech Republic, that's a relatively small nation in Europe, and then, historically, your family was more tied in with the Kingdom of Bohemia, wasn't it? Do you think of yourself as primarily Bohemian, or is it Czech? Um, it's actually the same. It's a little bit the analogy of Vienna and Austria. Vienna was the capital of Europe when it was the... Austro-Hungarian Empire under the Holy Roman Empire, 
in the same way the kingdom of Bohemia is now, it's, it's incorporated into the Czech Republic, but nation states are only, you know, 100, 150 years old. Right. So everything was, was done in sort of kingdom. So we're definitely Bohemians and the Czechs inhabited Bohemia. So it's, it's one and the same, in fact. A lot of Americans, when they heard the word bohemian, they think of uh, drunkards in Paris, right? <laughs> Beatniks and yeah, all sorts. You're from a land called Bohemia, which has nothing to do with the bohemian avant-garde outside of Paris back in the early last century or something like that. I'm speaking with Prince William Lobkowitz. William is uh, working very hard to steward his vast holdings for the Czech people. To learn more about his organization, lobkowitz-collections.org. L-O-B-K-O-W-I-C-Z hyphen collections.org. William's parents founded and are instrumental in working with the American Friends for the Preservation of Czech Culture, AFPCC. Did I get all that right, William? That's absolutely <laughs> right. It's a U.S. 501c3. It's a federally tax-exempt nonprofit, and uh, its goal is to promote Czech culture. And it was set up by my parents in the early 1990s, and that's been the main sort of American vehicle to tell people about the Czech Republic and hopefully get them involved in some of the things we're doing. Are there other counterparts of yours in other countries who are in a similar state and a similar sort of financial struggles that can empathize with your struggle better than, than other people? Yeah, there's certainly people that can empathize. As I said, I think each family has its own different situation. Some have other resources that they can bring to bear to raise funds to do the things that they need to do. Very often, that's the case. Mm -hmm. In the Czech Republic, some of our other cousins that have gotten things back have also had to deal with some very challenging issues. No one, though, has gotten anywhere near the amount of property that we got back in, in restitution. So I have to say that there isn't a sort of comparable situation that I'm aware of, but certainly some similarities and, and things. And we, we all try to talk and learn from each other and and try different things. But in our cases, as I said earlier, it's been, unfortunately, we've had to burn a lot of assets. We've had to sell a lot of assets to finance the banks, to finance our activities, and at the same time, run as fast as we can to create profit-making businesses like Lobkowitz Events Management that organizes events in the castles or, mm -hmm. you know, shops and cafes and concert series and things that will produce enough income to cover at least well, that covers about two-thirds of just the operating of these properties and paying the employees and things. And then the other roughly 30% is fundraised through this American Friends for the Preservation of Czech Culture through our very generous contributors over the last 18 years that allow us to open the collections for the public on a permanent basis. So it's a, it's a for-profit and the non-profit combination, but one cannot function without the other. That's our particular model. And I understand with restitution, it comes with a catch. The art treasures that were given back to your families can't leave the Czech Republic. That's the twist. <laughs> you may have a great treasure worth a fortune, but it's essentially unsaleable. So you're left with all sorts of financial burdens and no way to, to really uh, turn it into hard cash except for having your, your little boy out in the street selling ice cream to tourists. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he was 50 and it's time for him to get a summer job anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can keep my eye on him out there. But yes, that's true with the, with the art. It can't leave the country. And, you know, it's uh, the specific laws in the Czech Republic. In sure. other countries, people would make an argument to say, okay, let's sell this painting and raise X million dollars, but with the proceeds, we'll endow a a foundation or, or endow, you know, the, the rest of the collections to preserve and protect them. We're not in a, unfortunately, not able to, to do that. And we're also legally responsible. So nothing can happen to the collections. Otherwise, we get into some trouble as well. So we have to find creative ways to make the collections work for us, to try to do it in an elegant and appropriate way, but also to make it accessible for people who want to, who want to visit these places and they want to see some things and, and they want to get up close and almost touch things. And we, want to, we also want to make it very personal because I think that's what will bring people to our museums and make it very good customer service and very interesting things for them to, to do and, and pleasant experiences. So that's a lot of what we're doing as well. So we've got this concept all over Europe of noble families with lots of land and palaces, but with huge taxes, with limits on what they can sell, with lots of overhead and maintenance, and a feeling of obligation for the stewardship of their treasures. And we have that impoverished nobility scenario that takes some creativity to, to get over. 
William, I love the ethic that your parents taught you. What, again, were the three values that they would instill in you when you were a, a child growing up in a noble family? It's about your, your family and then your religion and your education, the idea being for the refugees that those are the three things that no one can ever take away from you. And noble families have lived a lot in great palaces, and they've also lived a lot as refugees when they have to flee the country for various reasons. Absolutely right. You know, when you think about the responsibility that comes with, you know, being the steward of these cultural treasures, it's both a blessing and a burden. Can you make the case that noble families are actually better at maintaining a country's heritage than state institutions? What's your take on that? We come from an old noble family, but I think it's more about who has it in their heart to take care of something. If someone has a real history and a connection to something, they're, in my opinion, they're going to make they're going to make a bigger effort. A state institution caring for our collections, well, we watched for 40 years. Now, this was communism, but a state institution will not have that personal connection to the items and be able to tell the stories in the same way. And our family's probably a good example in that any business person who would come and see what we're doing would say, are you crazy getting involved in all of these things? And what it really means, though, is we have a 700-year family history. And we see that as very important to carry on another 700 years. So we want to preserve the buildings, as many of them as we can. But we want to preserve, especially preserve and protect these wonderful collections that took centuries to put together. And our challenge is to find a creative way to do that. We are custodians and we are managers. We are not really owners in the way that my grandfather and even in my father's time in the 1930s, the Peter Bruegel the Elder haymaking painting or the two beautiful Canaletto views of London or the Beethoven manuscripts and scores which had been dedicated to the seventh Prince Lobkowitz, the Eroica and the fifth and sixth symphonies. These were dedicated to my ancestors, pretty much bankrupted the seventh prince <laughs> with yeah. all the work he did. But all of these things are are very important. And so today our job really is to find a way to make these things. What's new is that we're making them available to the public. And that's very rewarding because we can connect them with a lot of different institutions around the world. We have the great advantage of having technology that can do things that we could never do before. And so we have great educational possibilities, international loan things that we can do, educational programs. We can inspire young people. We can inspire older people to get involved in different things. We can connect our libraries, our archives, our collections with people who can then come and say, look, I know something about this painting or that painting, and then we can take that information from a scholar that we allow to study, and we can put it into the guide text, and then that can be presented to the public. So anybody coming over to visit can know more about a Beethoven manuscript or more about a Velazquez painting because we've made them available and connected with people. So I think it's a lot about connecting, and it's a lot about stewardship of, of the collections today rather than being a prince and uh, living in a castle. We live in a rented apartment. We always have for the 20 <laughs> years we've lived there. So we're not, we're not very grand in that way, but we have a huge responsibility, but we also have the greatest jobs in the world. I mean, every day I can walk into the Lobkowitz Palace and I can look at Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which was dedicated okay. to my ancestor right above it, and I put the audio guide on and I listen to the music. I'm inspired for several days <laughs> right there. It's, it's a great privilege to do it. And when you listen to that, you know that your great-great-great-grandfather gave Beethoven pocket money so he could do his work. That's right. That was for 21 years. The seventh prince was giving an annuity to, to Beethoven. Amazing. And the, the main thing, and, and his great claim to frame, was really that he gave Beethoven the ability to write music for music's sake not write music as, let's say, Haydn did for the Esterhazy family because that was the music that, that that patron preferred to hear. What he did was he said, Beethoven, do your thing. Here's money to support yourself, but write beautiful music. And I think that was his great contribution. But it's, it's really about thinking about these collections, and there's nothing that gives us more joy and pleasure than to have someone come through and say, that was the highlight of my trip to Prague, or you've opened a new world for me, or you've inspired our child to, to continue you know, with cello and wanting to be a professional or whatever it is. I think that's what all these collections 
are about and why we, we do it every day and why our whole family's involved in it. Wow. William Lobkowitz, best wishes with the blessing or the burden of being a steward of such a huge part of the patrimony of the Czech people. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Rick. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to talk castles. For 30 years, I've been climbing through castles like a little kid, ever since I was a little kid. And when you're traveling through Europe and in much of the world, when you find these castles, they're just filled with memories from the past. And if you can resurrect those ruins and if you can understand the whole uh, culture behind the castles and the economy and the struggles of people a thousand years ago, if you can look at the armor and see the nicks on the helmet and imagine there was a man's head in that helmet when that nick was made, uh, it just brings it to life. I've got with me a friend from Wales, a man I met at Carnarvon Castle in Wales. Uh, he's a tour guide there, and I was so uh, taken by his ability to, to teach about castle history and castle culture. Martin has joined us uh, here in our Seattle studios. Martin Delandovitz, thanks for coming. Thank you, Rick. You come from northern Wales, and I think that is the greatest concentration of castles anywhere I've seen in Europe, I would say. And these were state-of-the-art mighty castles built not by the Welsh people, but by the invading force, the English, before there was this lovely concept of a united kingdom. That's right. That was the, uh, how can one say, the top-down United Kingdom. Uh, nobody wanted it to happen. It, it, it just sort of happened. There are Welsh castles, but the, the ones people come and visit as English castles, it becomes that sort of John Wayne-esque situation in that Edward I has to move west into Gwynedd, just as uh, John Wayne was to move west many years later. And as he moved west, the natives fought against him, so he built forts. So did Edward I. Then, from back east, that we in Wales tend to call England, came settlers, and they lived in those walled towns around the castles, the boroughs, and they were true uh, pioneer settlers in what to them was a medieval frontier. Outside of the hostiles, what the hostiles were the natives, the Welsh. Very similar to the American conquering of, of the West inhabited by Indians or Native Americans. Yep. You have the uh, garrison towns within walls fortified mm. by a castle mm. and it could be stocked by sea. These are That's along right. the coastline. Yeah, yeah. And these were English settlers going into That's the right. wild and woolly valleys of Wales. Yeah, and it's very much like the, the conquest of North America in that a century later, all was fine. Yeah, there was none of that conflict, but the perception at the time. You can watch something like, say, Kevin Costner dancing with wolves and say this is a far better perception of the Native American. It may well be, but at the same time, think of the, the perception of the Native American that pertained then, and it's much more of the John Wayne perception, is the more of the conflict, savage. And, that, and so it was in Wales. What a castle does, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, once you're in a castle, you're safe. Therefore, the one that holds the castle is safe. Anybody that isn't in the castle is not safe. So that's how you control a region. So it doesn't matter whether it's William the Conqueror landing or you are, the, as it were, the native lord of that area. Your castle becomes the means by which you control the area. Everybody will give you taxes. Everybody will give you money because hmm. you're safe in your castle and they're not. And, and that's all a castle was ever meant to do, protect okay. the people in it. Take me to a castle. It's the year 1400. I'm a rich guy. I've got my castle. What's life like? Well, if you think of a king, I've got so many castles. I'll only visit there every so often. Now, but the majority of castles, we've been talking about the vassals, the lessers. That is their home. That is where their family, their household, where they hold their court. And that's a totally different life. But how comfortable it is. If I'm really, if I got state-of-the-art everything, I got yeah. money's no object. Do I have running water? Do I have heat? How am I going to be living in this right. castle? Right, you, you have running water. If you go to Carnarvon Castle, if you go to Dover Castle, you will see lead plumbing. Lead pipes are fed through the walls. Of course, the water is introduced by hand or by treadmill, but you have running water. You have bathrooms, lavatories, um, in the forms of guard robes that can be channeled out, flushed by water, they're fine. Do you You're, flush or does it just fall out? out, out it falls in some, it's flushed with others. Some overhangs that if the seat gave way, you'd fall a long way. Others actually are flushed. Your room that you live in has paints and plaster, stucco, whatever you want to call it, on the wall. Interior decorators travel throughout Europe, good interior decorators, just as they travel throughout the States today. Your furniture is of very good quality. The cloth you wear has been made for you. And you have a very good life. You live high off the hog. Now, people will always say to you, medieval people were shorter. Edward I was six feet four inches tall. 
Hmm. Richard I was over six feet tall. Henry VIII was over six feet tall. Hugh Carvely was seven feet tall. He's a contemporary of Edward I. So that as today, you think of the average height of the population of the United States of America. Since the end, let us say, of World War II, since the end of the Depression, it's shot up, hasn't it? And if you lived a good life, you were a tall person. So you're a tall person if you're an aristocrat living in a castle. You are dressed well. You have comfortable rooms. Great feasting when there's some occasion somebody visits. I've heard of servants bringing in an entire wooden plank filled for one course. They set it down and they eat that. Yeah. They carry that out and bring in another entire table head to put yeah. down on the, on the supporters. What, what happens is that by, let's just say, the 14th century, the lord is becoming separated from his retinue so that he is eating in the, the solar, in, in his own suite. He's got his own cook. He's got his own kitchen and so on. Whereas the hall, and he'll go to the hall and eat with his retinue on important days, but the hall is where the boys eat. In days gone by, let's think of William the Conqueror coming over, sword in hand, I'm with my boys. Yes, he eats and sleeps with them. Hmm. But, and if you look at a castle tower, think of a castle tower. It's a basement where nobody lives. Then it's a living floor, maybe another living floor. And then on top, there's a roof. Now take that tower. I'm doing it here with my arm. Now lie it down. And there you have a medieval hall. The basement is now at one end. There we cook. The room in the middle, hey, that's the hall where we all meet. Here is the solar, the private block. And that's what, how a medieval hall evolves. It's a tower that just simply lies down. And isn't that emblematic of the disappearance of those unstable times when we needed castles? Well, he said we live in halls there. We're very civilized people. Lots to learn about on these castles. And uh, I think you'll need to go to Wales or to Europe to delve deeper into that for now. I want to thank... Martin Delandovitz for uh, teaching us all a little bit about castles. Martin, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WGBH Radio Boston and to Aaron Harding for help with today's show. We also get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find many interviews from past editions of the show grouped by country. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Plus, Rick offers guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. It's all part of the Rick Steves Audio Europe package. You'll find links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.